Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my colleagues, Travis Fisher and Rachel Wilfong. Now, before we go any further, I want to remind everyone about the Power Hour's email account. Now, Travis, I know this is your favorite thing in the world. It is. So let us have it. Thepowerhour at heritage.org. Very good. Now, everyone, reach out to us. Let's start a conversation we've been having a lot of response, and we're going to get into that a little bit later, but write it down. Again, Travis, what is that email address? The Power Hour at heritage.org. Now, not to leave you out, Rachel, you're here today. Hey, How are you? I'm doing well. How are, are you? Are you excited? I'm thrilled. Uh, that doesn't sound real. That sounded sarcastic. Now, is that sarcastic? It's not sarcastic. Okay, you are thrilled. Yes, I am. You're a regular now. I am. Very good. I like it. So here's the thing. We've been getting a ton of email. Folks are asking questions and really engaging. Amongst other things, they're throwing a bunch of stuff out there that they want us to discuss, and most of those things are related to current events. So rather than inviting guests to address each of these things, today we're going to have a surprise. We're going to go through some of those emails and start just responding to some of them in the short term, you know, in a conversation today. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't still get guests because we've had some people actually ask for guests, so we'll try to, to get to them. But because a lot of these things are current event related, I thought, why don't the three of us engage on them? We're all energy experts. We get paid money to know this stuff. Let's not rely on guests all the time. Let's, let's see what we can do here. Um, so that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to start with the first one. Um, people are curious about OPEC's decision to cut output of crude oil. Um, people are concerned in Europe about it. People are concerned here. There are questions about how does this relate to the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Um, first of all, I guess we should lay out what happened. OPEC is – well, what's OPEC? Oh, boy. <clears throat> it stands for something. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting, Exporting Nations. Con countries. Right. And basically, it's a cartel. And they say, uh, here's, here's what we want to do. We're going to – Join together, and we have this cumulative output that you know. Hopefully, nobody violates by putting too much oil on the market. So that's that's how they control, or at least in part, control the global supply of oil. And prices do move when they make that kind of announcement. I think it, the price of crude oil jumped up about seven dollars a barrel. It did. Then it came back. And I didn't look at it yet today, but um, you know, one of the interesting things with with OPEC, I think, is that. Sometimes we give them a lot of credit as a matter of policy. Like we can't be dependent on OPEC nations because they can control gas and oil. I would argue, though, that um, while perhaps it's a concern to have that an, a, a, an American energy policy that is built around allowing markets to function efficiently undermines the ability of OPEC to do what it wants to do, which is to impact prices, if not determine prices. And I think that comes back to a subject that we've talked a lot about here, 
which is um, Biden's energy policy, that the reason OPEC's announcement, one might argue that the whole reason OPEC can, can do what it's doing, is because the Biden administration and its policy of scarcity, creating scarcity on gas and, in gas and oil markets, um, creates an opportunity for the OPEC nations to reduce output, thus creating problems for us. Um, and that I would argue it's the case that um, an energy policy that allowed American production to operate more efficiently, respond to markets more efficiently, basically undermines any power OPEC has. Yeah. So it's absolutely true. We're the, we're the swing producer. So in these volatile world markets, you would expect that when the prices go up, there are people here, entrepreneurs in the U.S., who say, I'm going to take advantage of that. And that's usually the case. That would certainly be the case in a pure market setting. Now, we do have some regulatory obstacles. And, of course, the president himself has promised, again, to a young activist that he's going to end fossil fuels. He's not going to cooperate. So that's the political backdrop for this. So I wouldn't blame an oil company for not necessarily diving headfirst in to try to get you know, these new slightly increased prices because it's a huge risk. Yeah, um, it is. It is a huge risk. And, you know, really, that, that that's the problem we see right now with with what's going on. You know, Biden, on one hand, as you said, points out the folks that um, or tells tells people that he wants to put energy companies out of business. Then he cries to industry that they're not producing what he wants them to produce. That folds into this next issue, which is the way Biden has tried to bridge the uh, the economic impact of his policy with the reality of the world we live in is through the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and that's been part of this um, part of this news cycle. I guess is that will Biden um, tap the Strategic Petroleum Reserve again, which he has done in the past. As oil, gas and oil markets go up and down, well, go up, prices go up, um, he's tried to mitigate that through SPR because we're not producing what we're supposed to be producing. Now, SPR has been gotten rid of, not gotten rid of, has been uh, drained significantly. So the question is, will uh, Biden replace the million barrels per day, which is what OPEC said they, I think a million, um, will not be producing with SPR? I don't know, Jack. We're about to get into driving season. That's true. Summer driving season. So it's all about timing, right? I think the uh, on the front end, when we were selling out of the SPR, I think the question was, well, okay, is this now going to be, is this more of an economic petroleum reserve? We thought, you know, the, the schmucks who had been following the rules for decades thought that it was for real emergencies real supply crunch crises, like Arab oil embargo, 1973-type crisis. Now I think it's turning into more of a, the president wants the price of gasoline to go down, so then he's going to use it to sell, he's going to use the SPR to sell crude oil into the market to get everything to tick downward at the right time, at a time that's very politically practical for him to do so. So that that's the risk here, is that, yeah, you do it for political reasons, and then you run out of oil to sell, and then... What happens when the next crisis hits or a real crisis hits? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things with SPR that's frustrating is that 
SPR was created by the 1975 Energy Policy and Conservation Act, um, which itself arose out of a totally different time and place where um, I would argue that politicians purposefully created the perception that energy was scarce and that justified government intervention into energy markets. And um, in fact, I want to come. I want to come back to this and talk about this. Even though no one emailed us about this particular issue, but we'll come back to it because it's my favorite issue, which is EPAC, uh, the Energy Policy and Conservation Act, because um, that leads to something that one of our colleagues, Rachel, is working on. Um, but at any rate, we were sold this 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 notion that energy scarce. We need government to intervene. One of the tools that the government created to intervene was the Strategic Petroleum Reserve which I guess makes, at least on the surface, rational sense. You know, we, people were talking about peak oil. We had prices going up. We were uh, dependent on Middle Eastern oil, and that comes with all sort of, uh, you know, all kinds of vulnerabilities, certainly back then. And so having a strategic petroleum reserve, I think, at least on the surface, made some uh, policy sense. But then the world changed. We didn't hit peak oil. Um, we didn't... Uh, in fact, we have more known reserves, um, maybe than ever, um, certainly lots and lots, hundreds of years worth when you consider um, um, unconventional and unconventional reserves. And so that has led to this current state where SPR has basically been a political tool, as you pointed out, for presidents to use um, to give the impression that they are responding to high energy prices, but they do it in a way, which politicians love doing, that puts them in control. They then, he it's almost as if Biden is acting as OPEC because Biden's using a political tool to manipulate prices rather than relying on the free market, which itself would respond to prices to produce more if policy would allow them to do that. Yeah, the, the other thing about this that's a little bit scary is the, the SPR is controlled by the Department of Energy. So- then you get someone in charge like Secretary Granholm, who if you want someone in charge, not that anyone should be in charge of global oil markets, but if you wanted to put someone at the head of that, she's not on my short list, Jack. I got to be honest. I don't have a short list of people in government that I want to be in charge of of uh, global oil supplies or prices. They, I, I hate to be so cynical, but I am who I am, and I am of the belief that a government empowered will ultimately use that power and that they will use all sorts of excuses to create mechanisms to exert power. And um, it is too often the case that the underlying justification that the power was granted is not the reason that power is ultimately wielded. And um, because I get paid at the Heritage Foundation to talk to energy, I will limit my view on that dynamic to energy, but luckily, um, well, we've got a lot of examples. Even even within examples. the energy and environment space, uh, I was taking some notes because I I'm sensing a theme here that we're going to start talking about the well. There's the original statute. So in the case of uh, EPCO, the 1975, the Energy Policy and Conservation Act, SPR, a bunch of other stuff. This is the efficiency standards. We'll probably get into a bunch of this stuff. The other ones, look. We've got uh, the Clean Air Act is another great example of what the heck are you guys doing? 
I think the the way to push back on the old statutes that people are reinventing, that the new bureaucrats are saying, oh, we found this amazing tool. It's been here all along, but we're using it in a new way. That's where the major questions doctrine, I think, is really going to play a big role because a lot of the stuff is like, guys, how can you read this statute and say, oh, I found this brand new authority. We're going to do things very differently. Even the SPR, I mean, it's not, it's not an election winner strategic petroleum reserve. It's, yeah, I, I want to continue pulling on the string that you laid out there. But I have to. I want to respond to this um, election winner SPR thing. I don't know if that's true. I think that people's perception of the importance of SPR as a tool of national strength is um, is significant. I think that look, independent of what I think should happen to the National Strategic Petroleum Reserve, I don't think it's a political winner to drain it or to get rid of. You know, it just sort of is this thing, and. What I think is more interesting than talking about whether we should have it or not, because I do think there are political consequences, right right or wrong, people will use manipulation of it as a political – for political leverage. We could save that. So the part for the dark web podcast yes, is yes. the <laughs> abolish it, pretend like it never <laughs> happened, sell it all, privatize it, sell it, abolish it. I mean I'm actually uh, – I have days when I think that maybe that's that was the right answer all along. I mean – I guess we didn't know to what extent we would be able to tap the real strategic petroleum reserve, which is in shale rock formations a mile deep. That is the real reserve that we have. But here, here's the thing, though. That's true. But what if, if politicians weren't there to get in the way, the market will, whether it was shale or whatever, or something totally different, the market will find those things because we want energy. People say we'll run out of gas and oil. I mean, we just won't because it will become too expensive and other alternatives will emerge. Nuclear-powered flying cars. Well, nu- nuclear power will always emerge uh, because it's the best kind of power. I but, agree. I've stopped arguing with you, Jack. I agree. That's neither here nor there. Um, let's get let's get back to, before we get to the, you know, we say we're going to answer a bunch of uh, <laughs> listener emails. I guess we're not. Um, we'll get to it. We'll get to some more. I want to finish this discussion, though, because you brought up EPAC, uh, EPCA. EPCA, which is, I think, not just the bane of my energy <laughs> policy existence, even though most people don't realize it, it's the bane of most Americans' energy policies existence because it's also it's the reason your shower sucks. Yes. Why regulate and a shower head? Come on. Why, th- sh- the things on the list here are it, just ridiculous. When, you know, this summer, as people are calling up their HVAC, um, their air conditioning uh, maintenance people, and the guy is like, hey, you need some more stuff to make your air conditioner cool again, and you get your bill, and it's a lot more than it was. Um, that's because of EPCA. It, uh, almost all of these things, um, light bulbs, they're now looking at other things, Um or they continue to look at other things. And let's go down that road a little bit because uh, one of the things that they are using to EPCA to justify the regulation of is gas stoves. That's right. Tell us about gas stoves because, Rachel, I know you're working on that. I am working on that. Um, DOE just last month or the month before, excuse me, released a proposed rulemaking predicated on EPCA 
that would just introduce stringent, far more stringent energy efficiency standards for particularly gas stoves. I mean, it targets all conventional cooktops too, right? So there's electric in there as well. But it's quite obvious that it's just a means to an end for for moving toward a ban and eliminating conventional fuels. I thought they weren't, uh, this like percolated up six months ago and everyone was like, oh, we're not doing that. We were just kidding. But you're saying they weren't just They're kidding. They're all liars. <laughs> They're all liars. Jokers no. and liars. Yes. That's what uh, this town is full of for sure. Yeah. Um, it, it just so happens that it comes around the same time or at least close to when the Consumer Product Safety Commission had come out and said, we'll consider a ban on, on gas stoves. Um, never mind. Um, but then also released a request for information a, a couple weeks after that saying, well, we might just start investigating it as a just-in-case. Um, and so these are layered on top of each other. Never trust a bureaucrat who just wants to investigate something. <laughs> because I guarantee you the result of that investigation will never be you have more freedom and your cost of living will go down. It is always the opposite. I've never heard of an investigation <laughs> from a government bureaucrat that actually resulted in me having more consumer freedom and me having more access to more products and more competition and lower prices and better quality. Never, ever, ever has that happened. Am you just I right? wrote my comment for me. There you go. You get that one for free um but yeah so so there's that and then um as you guys know about the there's a a washing machines comment that's coming up also thank god related because, to because my my washing machine needs government <laughs> oversight in fact i'm sorry to interrupt you but this is so annoying because washing machines already are not as good as they used to be because the government Mm-hmm. Oversight, not what oversight, you, government interference. Whoa, 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 whoa. So I've got to chime in here as the squish of the group. you got to define good. DOE thinks they're great <laughs> because they use less electricity per cycle. I, but I have to run mine six times. Oh, well, that, yeah. That's, that's, I don't a, that's, actually, that's, that's, that's a problem. That's a bit hyperbolic. But, yeah, I'm, I'm in the camp. I think we're in the same camp, Jack, of the I just want my stuff to work. I just want the appliance to do the job that it's meant to do. And the way the DOE talks about savings is it's always grinded my gears. It's always the they talk about they're saving you money yeah. when you use less electricity, but the whole point of buying an appliance is to use electricity to do a thing that I didn't want to do. Well, so in the DOE's mind, would it be a saving? Would would it would they be able to count it as consumer savings if they just banned all appliances and you had to do everything by hand? We'd be saving a lot of electricity if we went back to that. Right. But I just don't, I just don't buy into the whole premise of like, oh, you're welcome, everybody. We're saving you billions of dollars on electricity that you wanted to use right. for the appliance that you bought. Well, that's the concern here with this, especially, is that it's going – it's not – you know, obviously we don't want government making any sort of energy efficiency, setting any of that stuff. But especially here, it's effectively down the road going to be a ban. And there are what? 38, 40 million American households or something that cook on on gas stoves. So this is a rule that's targeting 50%, if not more, of that market and forcing them to totally overhaul their their designs, their products, their manufacturing, everything. So we're it's it's pushing to that point, Travis. Why do you hate efficiency so much, Rachel? Well, maybe I don't hate efficiency. It's up to me to decide that. I think that when when Travis was talking about DOE setting these standards and calling them great, the problem is that DOE is calling them great. It's not 
the consumers who are calling them. They great. were so great, we would just do it. Exactly. That's and well, and we do. Actually we do just. actually do it. So, um, we, moral of the story is. They just need to get out of our business. Well, and the other problem, because we, we could spend a long time on this, because I've read Rachel's draft comments. They're amazing. The The thing that stood out to me is I think the DOE is just going way overboard. Not that I liked what they were doing before, but this is a new this is a new era of pushing the limit and saying, like, it's in the statute that you're not supposed to reduce consumer choice. Now, the DOE comes up with a rule that makes it so that hardly any gas stoves qualify and you don't have a choice to get a new gas stove anymore, that's very clearly a violation of the statute, and they're doing it anyways. So it's becoming a little bit more blatant. It's not just, oh, we're going to tighten the efficiency standards. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with the light bulbs. It's it, They are actually taking away whole categories. And I think the only reason they're getting away with it is because we're, we're not calling them out. So it's yeah. time. So what can people do about it? People can comment. Um, what do you mean by that? So the whatever like we're commenting right now, does that fix it? um, If you put it down on paper and submit it to regulations.gov, it would. Okay. Uh, But I mean, mean, when whenever these standards get released and and for this specific uh, regulation, the DOE extended the comment deadline um, to April 17th. So you can go to regulations.gov, submit your comments, submit your concerns in the hopes that it will get thrown out, um, but so we have the cooktop, cooktops, refrigerators, refrigerators, and washing machines, God, and, so and they ridiculous. all came out pretty much at the exact same time. Yeah. Um, That's but, just what's on the menu right now. I mean, I think the <laughs> list is I, I forget the total number. It's something like sixty different things that they have rules for mm-hmm. now, and that list is always growing. It's not like they're like we get done these sixty, then we're done. We're done here. I've heard a little. Rumor that there could Scuttlebutt. be <laughs> that there could be a land management comment oh my God. on the horizon. Yes, in fact, we did get an email about this one too. Um, so, the Bureau of Land Management, the organization that um, oversees federal land, does things like oil and gas permitting and grazing cattle grazing, sort of manages all that on the so-called federal estate, which, first of all, is way too big. And I would argue the federal government shouldn't have control of all this stuff to begin with. And That's the theme of this episode. Right. Uh, It's kind of the theme of what we do here. Uh, And, look, um, well, it's already too big. Personally, I would like to see more of it privatized. I think Texas, for example, does a great job with that. They have very little federal land, and they have um, very robust wildlife and energy production. I think they they do it right. So, you know, I I err on the side of privatization, but I think it should be down to states to manage these areas the way they want. Um, That's a side point. What you're talking about, though, is this proposed notice notice of rulemaking that – will elevate conservation easements on par with other multi-use purposes in deciding permitting. Um, that, this, this, this notion of multi-use purposes is, is important because it's public land and it's supposed to be used for recreation 
uh, uh, energy development, all sorts of things, grazing, like I said. So this, this notion of multi-use is really important. And this would elevate conservation to um, equal footing with these other considerations. Now, on its face, people are like, well, conservation's cool. That, that seems reasonable. Instead of, uh, you know, doing this, we'll do conservation. I'm not anti-conservation. It's like efficiency. I'm not against efficiency. Um, Wait, I thought you did hate efficiency. No, I love efficiency. That's why I don't like government. Uh, See, government extraordinarily inefficient, private sector efficient. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, government overseeing cooktops and telling me how to make my dinner inefficient. Me just going out and buying something and putting something so efficient. Got it. So there you go. Um, so, so on this BLM thing, they are proposing to make conservation leases on par with other multi-uses. On its face, that seems maybe fine. But here's the thing. Two things. Here are two things. One, um, underlying this move to conservation is Biden's global warming agenda. So they broadly define conservation to include advancing global warming or the Right, Biden and that, that's, that's been that's been a card that they play. This goes back to the Obama years, where you you take federal lands off limits, basically, and you talk about, oh, well, we we've had these leases, but nobody's drilling. It's like, well, yeah, you, you it, there's a trial and error element to it, but and you can't have the one beside it, right? Which you need. Um, so they they're making so it essentially says global warming is on par with these other multi-use things, and here's the other really I think dangerous piece of this, which is that. Um, Though deep in the regulation, it says other uses should not be prohibited. It says that they can be prohibited if they get in the way of the conservation goals, which, remember, is global warming. Therefore, it seems to me that what this regulation sets up the framework for doing is using global warming as the justification not to do anything. So what does not anything mean? It means not anything. Uh, obviously, it, they would... I mean, one could imagine them saying you can't do gas and oil or coal development because, you know, according to them, that you know that's like the worst global warming stuff you can do. Um, and again, it doesn't lay out in the regulation what it what you can and can't do. So we're just sort of we're thinking about it out loud. Um, what about grazing? I don't know. Um, we've heard that cow. You know, you, there's always the funny article that cow flatulence. And methane causes global warming. So, like, does that, I don't know, does that fall under that? Does cow flatulence <laughs> mean that um, you can't meet your conservation goals as defined in global well, now warming Well, now I'm starting terms? to get worried. Now I'm starting to get worried that they're going to come after human beings. <laughs> well, that's ultimately, well, well, we can get into that on the dark because... web one. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely don't like a carbon tax. I would... Really, really not like a methane tax applied to myself. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> that is uh, way too much information. Um, and what about? I mean, I, it seems to me as we as we see in public policy, generally speaking, everything can be cast in terms of global warming. Therefore, could that not also be the case here? I don't know. What do you guys think? Are you scared? Well, so first observation because I. Checked into this just a little bit. The the rule actually it comes under the 1976 Federal Land Policy and Management Act. So that tells me we're dealing again with the 70s era statute, and somebody decided to read it completely differently now. 
because I have personally, I don't see anything wrong with changing direction in terms of public policy. The thing that I would push back on is this idea that you can just use the old existing statute in a brand new way. Did you just reject postmodernism on the (laughs) power hour? I think you did. Yeah. I, yeah. Is that not clear? Yeah. (laughs) Reject that. Hands hands down. Policy postmodernism. Travis is not. A, Although an I, to. I have been meaning to get so. To touch back on the energy efficiency standards for a second, I sometimes identify as an incandescent light bulb, and I don't like that my government tried to ban my existence. You are bright. So, yeah. So sometimes I just that's just how I you know, maybe I am postmodern. Anyways, uh, no, you're. We're not. dealing with an old statute. Like this is clear major questions doctrine stuff. You know, you would think that that message has been sent, the West Virginia v. EPA, and the whole, well, let's just read the Clean Air Act in a completely different way, where best system means the entire grid. Oh, that's a that's a novel idea. Brilliant if you buy into it. Completely stupid if you like the rule of law. So th- this fits in the same pattern, right, where you're basically yeah. taking an existing statute and saying, oh, well, we've got a completely new way. We know what it says, but... We're reading it differently now. It, it really goes back to what we started on, is that government will use any reason to create a justification to expand its power. And then when that power is ultimately wielded, it hardly ever has anything to do with that original justification. And this is another example of that. You know, it goes to, look, we here at Heritage have put a lot of emphasis in the last year on, on doing comments to regular, regulatory um, regulatory comments. And that's important. Definitely that has that there's an important reason to do that but at the end of the day these these underlying statutes need to be rooted out because that's the problem they were created in a different time a different place and we just need to get rid of them maybe there is a need for a new a, a, a new energy efficiency treatment in government i don't know i mean there's not, but let's just say for the sake of argument, there is. Um, or a new regulatory, fr- there's certainly a need for a new regulatory framework. Um, and rather than trying to to undo the really bad that we have really across the board in energy policy, we should just redo it. And I think that holds true almost everywhere in public policy because it was all born out of an era that no longer exists. And as we see time and again, I would argue, um, in government, in policy, I would even argue in international relations and things like that. When you rely on these bureaucratic structures that were created for a different time and place for modern times, you end up repeating the same circumstances that those bureaucratic structures were created for. And it's extraordinarily dangerous. Um, So that's what I think of that. And we do, we have some precedent of repealing the, the worst stuff. Great example is I, I think the crude oil export ban was around the same time. Um, I don't know if that was included in, in the original EPCA or not, but the idea being, well, we need to hoard everything we've got. And there are other really silly laws saying like, well, we can't use natural gas to generate electricity. That was so boneheaded, it was repealed. Um, that was repealed early on. That was, I think, 87. But we eventually got to the point where we really needed to export crude oil because we had plenty of it, and that was finally taken off the books. So, 
Okay. It's there, not it's not hopeless. I'm trying to be an optimist on this show. You know, there are there, examples. There, there are examples there are of examples. repealing the stupid laws. But you know, by the same token, um, we still have troubles with natural gas exports. Uh, it, natural gas exports can be easy or can be difficult, depending on where the political pendulum swings, because it falls to the Department of Energy making a so-called national interest determination to, if you're exporting to countries that you don't have a free trade agreement with. And um, while I agree that it is a legitimate subject of public policy to, um, to prevent the export of certain goods to adversarial nations, reasonable, um, those should be defined and, and, and then allow people to engage in their commercial practices as they wish. I would argue that um, if I am a company and I've invested billions of dollars into my company, that my determination of exporting something uh, as an American citizen is by definition a national interest because I'm a citizen just like everyone else. I invested a bunch of money, created a bunch of jobs. I don't need Washington getting in the way of um, preventing me from from doing that outside of national security um, exemptions for sure. I think that might get us back into H.R. 1 and one of the meritorious pieces of that that I thought was I, – I, if I'm reading it correctly, it would basically make it a de facto national interest. You would assume by default that exporting gas is in the – national interest and you wouldn't need the independent individual DOE findings, which I think would take a lot of the uncertainty out of it because honestly, I would struggle to think of a time when exporting gas would not be in the public interest. So I, 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 yeah. I, I struggle with that. I'm like, well, the, if the answer is yes, just say it up front and tell everybody the answer is yes. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, HR1 would be a huge step forward on, um, on energy policy, getting us to the right place. So while I said we should root everything out, HR1 might not root everything out, but it's a good first step. It's got some good elements for and sure. And I wish it would get rid of EPCA. I hate EPCA so much. It's such a it's such paternalistic big government garbage. You know what would be interesting to me is if somebody floated that idea cuz I I don't hear it floated that often. Thanks Jack for floating it. But if it got some real traction, I'd love to see who squeals. Who says, oh, no, we need, we need, oh, man, we need all these efficiency standards. If you look at EPCA, and it lays out a handful of conditions that, that gave rise to the need of it, need for it, literally none of them exist. Yeah. None of them exist. So every time, you know, every time you go to purchase something and you think it costs more than it should, it's because of this. It, it is largely, no, this legislation— the statute contributes to that. And um, anyway, we, we were on that enough. Um, we're actually running out of time here. There was one other um, email that I wanted to get to regarding um, Europe. Well, I've got one too. So I'll, 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 go, I'll be go, go I'll, with yours. I'll be quick with mine. So, um, and we're keeping people anonymous, right? Yes. Okay. Anonymous question from somebody was an. I believe in the future, if people want not to be anonymous, we will we will shout them out for sure. Yeah, well, let's make the default that we don't use names. But if you want us to use your name, sure. Um, so basically, the question is about how do people think about grid reliability? How should a policymaker view grid reliability? This guy is coming from the Texas perspective, 
the Electric Reliability Council of Texas is doing some rule changes. A lot of people are upset about it. They say it's like moving away from the market structure and that it's the policy makers who are getting in the way of what should be a well-functioning market. Um, I don't have a, a short answer for this. I do have about a dozen things that I think need to be handled before we get a good answer to this question. Because really, I do think there is a market answer, and I think there's a, a, a good structurally sound way to do it, to say, well, let's just put a value on reliability, sort it out through a market setting. You can do a separate capacity market. You can do it energy only, but you have to be explicit about the reliability benefits, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. What we're not talking about, and every time I bring this up, it, it seems like it, it doesn't quite get the traction it deserves. What we're not talking about is all of the policies that directly contribute to less reliability. So we're talking about subsidies for intermittent renewables. We're talking about even the, the most backwards one, my least favorite, the wind production tax credit. What the PTC does is it pays people no matter whether the energy is needed or not. So you see prices go negative, wreaks havoc on markets. So I would start there. I would say if you want to have that conversation, let's talk about the policies that we should repeal. So that's all the state-level renewable portfolio standards, all the mandates and subsidies. Let's let's talk about those first. Totally agree. Um, I was just at a at a um, at a discussion earlier today, actually, on nuclear energy. Now, this was an off-the-record discussion, so I can't go into details of who hosted it or who was there. Um, but it, it was a fairly high-level discussion, people from government, different governments and, and industry and stuff like that. And one of the speakers there uh, laid out what the government's objectives on nuclear energy were from a commercial standpoint. And literally, each of these objectives that they, challenges that they want to overcome were created by government. And um, that was that was my response. So, you know, with these things, you sort of sit around a round table and, and fancy people give fancy remarks. And then it's open to questions and answers. And because I'm always just itching, I, I get irritated and I, I just want to come out swinging. Um, I always wait like two and a half seconds so that I'm, I don't seem over eager. And if no one says anything in two and a half seconds, my hand goes up automatically. And that was the point I raised. I was like, these are all really important things for sure. However, you created all of them. And why should we trust you to fix any of them? And why don't we just try a different approach? Um, that's what you're talking about there. Like, uh, well, 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 if it isn't the consequences of our own actions... Yeah, and that's almost always the case. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, maybe you had good reasons for going down that path in the first place. I actually don't think there's ever a good reason for the subsidy paradigm that we had. But if you can acknowledge when those start to bump up against other things you care about, the answer is not to just band-aid over and over and get, you know, all sorts of layers of uh, of government on top of government. It's that that that's never fixed any problem. Yet that's where we are. It's too often the case that rather than fixing the underlying structural issue, government just tries to paper over it, which just creates another level of, uh, of complexity. Now, before we close out, um, we actually had someone from Europe email us, and they uh, linked to an article and they wanted us to comment on 
that the EU has promised to double its commitment on renewable energy, like by uh, 2035 or something like that. I forget the the exact date. Um, this is insane to me. Like, when you look at how little in total Europe gets from renewable energy right now and how hard of a time they had responding to Russia cutting off, you know, the Ukraine invasion, um, that they would respond to that by saying, we need to double down on, on renewable energy rather than we, if we hadn't been so committed to renewable energy and we had allowed normal energy markets to exist, we would have been far more capable of responding to Vladimir Putin. And their, but their response was not that. It was, let's just double down. Like, well, and specifically with, with renewables, right? It wasn't, it wasn't even uh, sort of a resource-neutral CO2 emissions target, right? It was specifically that we want to double down on renewables, which kind of tells you everything you need to know if it's, if it's really about the climate or not. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that that's a really important point. Um, you often hear politicians and bureaucrats say this. We're do we are doing uh, – we are increasing our renewables – to advance our, our this, that, and our climate policy, as if climate policy is the objective rather than an environmental objective. And you know that they actually, do, that it's all, um, it's all for show, it has nothing to do with the environment because of the way they specifically define how you get there. If they were serious, now I'm not for this, to be clear, I'm not for putting a cap on carbon dioxide, but if you were serious about it, you would the uh, the government would recognize where it falls short and where its weaknesses are and what its strengths are and where uh, where the private sector strengths and weaknesses are the government's strength unfortunately or fortunately is saying this is what we're going to do this is the new law and we are going to reduce carbon dioxide by 50% by 2030 like just say that make that the law and then tell the private sector, you go figure it out. Like that, if, if they really cared about global warming and they believed what they were selling, that's what they would do. Well, and you'd have to talk about the actual warming, which is, uh, I'm going to go down a small rabbit hole here, Jack, just very briefly. I've talked to my journalist friends about this. Whenever you see the part of the article that says climate impacts, invariably, that section of the article is about emissions reductions not climate impacts. Mm -hmm. I wish the label would match what the substance of the article is because they never go to that next level of saying, you know, like like we do here, you plug into the, the model, say, well, okay, we know the CO2 emissions reductions. What does that buy you in terms of global climate change by year 2100? Mainstream articles never do that. You know, that buys you a handful of magic beans. That's what it buys you. Using the magic model? <laughs> That's exactly right. I wish beans came out of that thing. The only thing coming out of that thing is bad news. But um, <laughs> um, now you have to say what the magic model is. Oh boy, <laughs> it's an acronym again that I don't know. You don't need to say the acronym. So it's basically it, it gives you a, a sense of um, the alleged sense, an alleged sense <laughs> using United Nations models. It you you can input a change in greenhouse gas emissions, and then the output it gives you is 
degrees Celsius change by, and it usually spits out 2050 and 2100. You're a good-looking fellow, Travis. Have you ever considered being a United Nations model? <laughs> no, I think um, they run too hot for me. <laughs> Rachel, yes. do you have anything else to add to this conversation? You know, I think that that was a great note to leave it on. Are we going to leave it on that? We're going to leave it on that. Travis and Rachel, as always, thank you. Thank you for stepping up. I thought that this went okay. Um, let us know, y'all what you think of it. We want to thank everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And if you didn't, tell your enemies. Either way, just please tell someone. Before we sign off, we have an email account that you can reach out to us. Tell us if you like this sort of approach, you want us to do more of these. Tell us if there are subjects that you want us to talk about. If there are people you want to hear more about, if you want to hear a deep dive on a subject, because we'll do it. We'll do what you ask. And if you want to shout out, say you want to include the name. If you want to shout out, we will do that. So there you go, folks. The Power Hour at Heritage.org. And if you want to find more episodes, you can search us anywhere you get your podcasts. um, The Power Hour Heritage. uh, And you can access our full episode library that way. And listen to this over again if you want. If you want, you have to, I think, listen to it at least twice. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next time. 